Well, if you will, turn with me uh, this morning to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been in this epistle for several weeks now. We're going to continue. It looks like it'll be another week or two before we finish the first chapter, but this is a, a rich, rich letter from the Apostle Peter to the church. And say it is so relevant for us today. If you can, let us stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word as we begin reading in verse 13 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter. Verses 13 through 19 is our text this morning. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Let's pray. Your God in heaven, we do thank you again for the reading of your word. You have spoken to us across the ages, even into this present day, through the, these words of your servant Peter, through this entire book we call the Bible. I pray, God, this morning as we've gathered as your people to worship, that, Lord, number one, that you are happy with us today, that our worship is pleasing to your ears. But, Father, more so that we ask that if you are pleased with us, please speak to our spirits this morning. Speak to us through your word. Remind us through the words of your servant Peter that we are not residents of this world. We are somehow children that are set apart from this world. We have been bought by the blood of your son Jesus. We have a different way of living, a different way of seeing, a different way of thinking. And the words of your servant Peter, God, I pray, would encourage us and remind us of our position there as your children and as we call you Father. Speak into our hearts, Lord, this morning. Let this time be yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a seat. It's interesting here that this letter from Peter to the church, remember this letter was written not just to one particular church, but to a, a an exiled diaspora of the church, right, of, of the first century. Probably around 64 A.D., 64, 65 A.D., by this time, the church had been scattered throughout all of the Roman Empire, and Peter is writing words of encouragement. The first 12 verses up until this point were actually letters or, or words from Peter that describe the supreme value of their salvation. Right? If you are in a, a time of persecution in this new faith of Christianity, and suddenly things were going wrong, and you were running for your life in fear and trembling, you may begin to doubt and question, what is our salvation here? What does this mean? What, what have we been saved from if suddenly we are in danger, right? 
So the first 12 verses of 1 Peter here, Peter is writing encouragement to the church to remind them you have been saved from a lot. And in the midst of this persecution, in the midst of your sorrow and suffering, I want to remind you of the fact that you have been bought with the price. You have been saved not of your own power, but God loved you enough to redeem you. And for that, Peter wants to remind them of who they are. You have been saved, right? That joy inexpressible that he talks about. No one can understand the joy of salvation in Christ unless they've actually been saved. Unless God himself has redeemed them, changed them to make them new men and women in Christ. You can't understand that joy. This is what Peter's reminding them of. Now we get to verse 13. It's interesting, at this point in verse 13, Peter shifts his tone here, right? First 12 verses was a pleasant reminder describing the supreme value of salvation. Now he shifts to a command language, right? Uh, English majors, you'll understand this terminology. He shifts to the imperative, right? Those of you who remembered your English class, anybody remember that in English class? I always remind my students at the community college where I teach, we start talking about grammar, and then they go, duh, what? We don't know that. But this this tone of language here shifts to the imperative, which means now Peter is he, he's putting on the, the apostle hat now. In verse 13, Peter is now saying, okay, I've given you encouragement, now let me tell you what needs to be done. Verse 13. This is now the imperative, the commanding obligations. He now begins to explain what the, what God expects of his children, the church, the, the, the elect, those who have been saved. Peter now shifts to this commanding structure of explaining their responsibilities as Christians and the obligations as God's children. Right? So, this is appropriate for this text this morning, I think. And I did not plan this to fall on Father's Day. It just did. As children, did our parents, our fathers have expectations of us? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mamas have expectations. Do our fathers have expectations? My father sure did. Right? I spoke to my father for about an hour this morning on the phone. And I remember as a child, he, he loved us. He, he doted on us. He, but he didn't spoil us. But he had expectations. Right? Like, get out of bed. You're not going to lay around all morning. You got work to do. You got chores to do. You got to get to school. You got work, right? That's that's part of a father's role. And even just attitudes and behaviors. I remember as a teenager, my dad always he gave us freedom to be teenagers. He provided a car for us. It was just it was a '73 Chevy Nova that we paid a hundred dollars for, and it worked. Well, we had to build it. We had to put an engine in it, but that was my first car, right? And my dad allowed us to go at the age of 16 to you know, get a job. He encouraged us, go get work after school. You can do this. And then because of the responsibilities he allowed us to have, he gave us some freedom to go and enjoy ourselves as teenagers. But here's what he always said. Here's what I expect of you, son. Go have fun. He gave us a certain time to be home on Friday night. But he said, if you call me from jail, I'll see you Saturday morning. You know, those expectations, those uh, demands of the father on his children, Peter here is going to explain this to the church now. God the Father has saved you. Now you have a responsibility and there are obligations as God's children, even in the midst of the suffering and the persecution that you have are now in, you are still under God's 
authority and his love and his protection. You have obligations now. And now he's going to explain that. So verse 13. He says, therefore. Anytime you see the word therefore in Scripture, just know that something important is coming. This is kind of the conclusion to an argument that he's presenting. The first 12 verses, Peter is laying out the, the, the criteria for salvation and where it comes from. And now he's going to lead the conclusion. Therefore, now that you are saved, you have these obligations. Therefore, he says, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he wants us to set our hope fully on grace. If you are in the midst of suffering and persecution, your, your life is stressful, people are coming against you, nothing is going right, you may feel like God has abandoned you, that the world has abandoned you, but in the midst of that, Peter is reminding them, as God's children, set your hope fully on the grace that brought you into the full revelation of Jesus Christ. You see that? Set your hope fully on the grace now, it, this is, there's a twofold part here of, the, of this latter part of verse 13 that Peter's talking about. Set your hope fully on the grace. Number one, the grace that you've already experienced in your salvation, right? You are now fully saved in the blood of Christ, so set your hope on that. But also there's a second part. Set your hope fully on, the, on that which is still yet to come. If you're in the midst of a hard time and you don't really have a grasp of your circumstances and you're struggling and you're, you're upset and you, and you feel lost, isn't, doesn't it help you to have a goal out there to reach for? Right? Abigail here just finished a very stressful semester at UT Knoxville, right? Did you not have a goal at the end of the semester to get through? I'm struggling here in March, but you know what? May is a coming. Hallelujah. Right? Right? Get through this. You've got the, the end is in sight. Right? And this is what Peter's reminding the church here in verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace, number one, that you've already experienced, but there is still something more to come that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, Peter's saying those who set their minds fully, completely, with no reservation, confidently in Christ. Those who set their minds this way will run to Him. See, there's two things happening here, right? As the church is living in this stressful circumstance that Peter is writing them to them about, they're going to be surrounded by pagan worship. They're going to be surrounded by, by pagan ways and rituals. And just even the culture and the way things are in wherever they find themselves in exile, they're going to be surrounded by people who are not Christians. They're going to be pulled one way and another by different attitudes and different temptations. Wait a minute. This is how the community works. This is how the community deals with things. But as Christians, we don't. They're going to be tempted with this. So there's going to be this tug of war, right? And so Peter is saying those who set their minds on that which is vain, right? Those things that have no purpose, that have no end, that have no goal set before them. The, the, the vanity of the world, those who set their minds on the vanity of the world did not really sincerely set their hope in God's grace. Do you ever ponder that? 
As Christians, do we set our hope on God's grace? But what level of hope do we have? Is hope fully complete? Is hope satisfied? Is there no doubt, no reservation in our hope of God's grace? Or is there, you know, well, I'm just going to give this a try, and if it works, fine. If not, whatever. You see, what Peter's writing here in verse 13 to those Christians to encourage them Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you because if your mind is not set for the action that God has given us to be, then you're going to sway back and forth in those vain ways of thinking that are all around you. You see that? You see, here's the thing. As we are in this world, right? we are... Those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, do we know for a fact that we have been saved? Hopefully. Right? Yeah? There is, again, that, that, that helps explain that inexpressible joy that Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1. But as we live in this world, how many of us actually know everything there is to know about Christ and everything there is to know about God and everything to know about the gospel and everything? How many people know everything about this book? Sometimes we are in a situation where we do not understand, God, what are you doing? Why is it that the evil people are winning and I'm losing? We live in a world and we understand the grace of God through what uh, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We see his love and his grace through a mirror darkly. You ever heard that term? We see the ways of God. We see his mind. We see his love and his grace even though we trust Him and we, we can't ex- fully explain what's going on, we see all of this truth, we see His love through this mirror that is dim. That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. So because we're in that situation, Peter here in chapter 1 verse 13 says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope in the fact that Christ is coming again. Set your hope in the fact that you may be suffering now, you may be in persecution now, things may not be going well now, but Jesus is coming back. Amen? That's what he's talking about here in verse 13. You may not fully see it clearly. Now, this image in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, through a mirror darkly, let's try to set this understanding here. Because in our modern context, we're going to have in our mind what a mirror looks like. How many of y'all had a mirror this morning that you actually stood in front of and got yourself ready to come to church? Okay. Was that mirror very clear? It may have had like makeup and stuff spattered all over it and toothpaste. You know, sometimes you got to wipe the toothpaste off of it, right? But when you clean that mirror, I and mean, it's a very shiny, polished mirror, isn't it? Very clear. The mirrors of this day in the first century church, in the ancient world, mirrors back then were not quite so polished. The manufacturing process of that time was not like what we have today. The best mirror you could get back in the first century church was a polished piece of metal. They didn't have glass mirrors like we do today. Can, have you all ever looked in a piece of metal and the reflection of a metal? No matter how polished you get, even the chrome on your car... Does that give you a good, clear image of what you look like? That's the kind of mirror that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 
you're not going to get a clear image in the mirror. So we see, the, we see God and his love through the mirror darkly. That's what that means. And because of that, we're going to be tempted here to be swayed to things that are more clear and more relevant. And so the world may appear attractive. And so Peter here in First, cha- in first Peter chapter 1 is reminding the Christians, you're in a strange place. Everything around you is going to seem clear, but be cautious. Prepare your minds for actions and be sober-minded in the midst of all of this so that you can set your hope fully on the grace of knowing that Christ is coming again. Now let's understand here this this idea here of faith and hope, right? What is hope? It's almost like hope and faith are are equal. They, They have similar... Uh, characteristics, but they're equal, but they're different. What is faith? Faith is trust in those things that you do not see. Faith is trust in the present. I have faith right now that I'm going to make it to work. I have faith right now that when this service is over, that someone's going to have dinner for me ready, right? I have faith right now, whatever it is, I have faith that my car is going to start. I have faith right now that my husband loves me. I have faith that my children love Whatever it is, you have faith in the present. So faith, when we talk about faith in Christ, that faith is trust in the present now. What is hope? Is hope trusting of something that is yet to come? Right. So hope and faith work together, but they have different uh, responsibilities. Right. Faith is present. Hope is tomorrow. Do we have hope that tomorrow is going to come? Do we have hope that someday Jesus will come back? Do we honestly, truthfully, confidently have hope that Jesus has not abandoned us? Or is it just a story that we remind ourselves of at Sunday school? You see what Peter's doing here? He's telling the church here, Set your hope fully on the grace by preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Don't allow your mind to be entangled with the world. In other words, prepare your mind for action by being sober. Right? Now, I know no one in this room uh, are drunks. Nobody here drinks alcohol. and You don't know what it means to be drunk. I'm just going to assume that. But what does it mean to be sober-minded here, right? Peter is actually using a metaphor that Jesus Christ himself used. In preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Jesus speaks about this in Luke chapter 12. Flip over that over to that with me. Luke chapter 12. And beginning in verse 35. This is what Jesus has to say, right? Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. You see, Peter here is actually listening to the words of Jesus because if you read the rest of this text, Peter is actually asking questions about this parable. 
So Peter now, in this letter in 1 Peter chapter 1, is actually kind of explaining a little bit further what Jesus is talking about, right? What does it mean to prepare your minds for action? Some translations say gird your minds for actions, right? How many of y'all do any work outside? Anybody ever do work outside, especially right now with all the everything growing and the weeds coming up everywhere, right? You know, you got to get outside and clean out the yard. You got to clean up the, the garden and, and, you know, wash the car, whatever. You got work to do. How many of y'all work outside in your best suit of clothes or your best dress? Anybody do that? No. So when you got work to do, you're going to prepare your clothing for that work, right? You're not going to wear clothing that's going to be loose and flowing and everywhere and get caught up in the machinery. You're going to gird all that up. You're going to tighten up your belt. If you've got long flowing robes like they did back then, if you were going to work, you bound all that up and you girded it around your waist like you you had to get to work. This is what this imagery is talking about. Jesus talks about it in Luke chapter 12. Peter's using the same imagery here. Prepare your minds for action. Gird up your minds for action. And be sober-minded. Right? Girding up your minds is the same. Actually, what Jesus talks about is gird up the loins. That's the terminology to, to prepare for work. Peter uses that terminology for the mind. Just as you're going to gird up your body and get ready for work and take all those clothes and tie them up tight, do the same thing with your mind, according to Peter. How many of y'all, just be honest with yourself. I mean, you don't have to raise your hand, but just ask yourself this question. Is my mind all over the place? Right? We, we have two realities of our existence. We have our physical presence, but we also have a mental presence, don't we? Right? We have two realities of our existence. We have the physical body. We also have the mental. If your body and if your living conditions are all chaotic and scattered, what does that lead to? Anybody got some scattered, cluttery ways of living? <laughs> right? I mean, cars right now have trash piled up in the back window, right? Think about that. Think about your mind. Is your mind the same way? Is the mind clear? Is the mind girded up, ready for thinking? Is the mind girded up and prepared to work about pondering about the truths of the gospel and remembering that we have been saved? We don't really work our minds anymore in our society. We don't read anymore. We, we sit in front of, well, we used to sit in front of television and be zombies. Now we sit in front of these wonderful uh, devices called a cell phone, right? right. You, you go out into the community. You, I, that's just to say you go to McDonald's. You ever, ever, ever noticed, right? You're, or maybe you're one of these families because you're not noticing it. You see families sitting at a table together at McDonald's and there's four of them sitting there and all four of them have a cell phone and not one of them's looking at each other. They're all looking at their cell phone. What is going into the mind there? Ponder that. Now, is this a condemnation for technology? No. Is this a condemnation of the society we live in? To a point. We have to live in it. But Peter is saying because you are living in a pagan situation, because you are living in exile, and you're surrounded by people who are not like you, who are not Christians, who have not been redeemed, it is imperative, it is important that you prepare your minds to be sober-minded. How about this? There is a discipline of, of spiritual preparedness where it is always healthy to be in a discipline of setting your mind first thing in the day 
on Christ? How many people actually can find time in the morning to sit and spend time with the Lord with no distractions, no cell phones, no radios, no TV, maybe as a family, just sitting and starting the day, preparing your mind for the day in Christ? That's a good habit. Some people could say that's difficult. I would argue it's not that difficult. It's actually pretty easy if we set our minds on the things of Christ, to be sober-minded, to disentangle ourselves from the world. That's what to be sober-minded means, to disentangle our minds from the world. We won't go there, but if you want to take notes, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 12 and in Ephesians chapter 6. Same concept. The world that you live in is not of Christ Christ has come to redeem the world and He's doing it through His blood, but He's doing it through you. Where you are in the world, God will use you as His messengers. If our minds are entangled with the cares of the world, then we're going to be all in a mess. We're going to be all in a twist. We're not going to be clear-minded. We're not going to be able to work for the kingdom. Now, what is... Peter talk about next. Look at verse 14. If we have been saved by the blood of Christ, if God through His mercy has sent His Son Jesus to redeem us, that's what he talks about earlier in the chapter, verse 3 through 4, then we are His children. If we call on Him as Father, we are His children. And this salvation that is given comes with expectation. Now, this is an important point that Peter brings up. And it's important for us to remember that as we're talking to folks who are coming to Christ for the first time, it is important to remind them, yes, you know what? This is a free gift. And hallelujah, we're going to celebrate that God has changed your heart, changed your mind, made you into a new person. Hallelujah, He has forgiven you of your sin. Great. But then we forget that there is an expectation. Or we turn it around and we make the expectation of behavior come before the salvation. This is where this can get kind of confusing. As obedient children, in verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. See, sometimes we're going to get this turned around. It's good to remind Christians of their, of God's expectation that we are to be holy, right? How many of us in this room feel like they're holy, right? Anybody holy? When we hear that word holy, what comes to mind? We think of God and His majesty and His sovereignty and in God's holiness, the untouchable. Right? When we really read in Scripture, whenever the, the, the prophets of old would come into the presence of God or the ancient priest would come into the holy of holies, it was an attitude and a presence of God's holiness that caused sinful humanity to just prostrate on the ground, to live in fear in that presence because we do not dare come into that holiness. Is this what God is expecting of us? Let's take a look at this. And verse 14, as obedient children... Now, 
The only people that Peter's talking to in verse 14 are those who have been saved by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are now obedient children. Peter is saying, as God's children, we are not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. God adopts His church as a loving father adopts the orphan. Amen? God adopts sinful people into His family and calls them His children, all children of God. Imitate their fathers. How many of us, whether you're a daughter or a son, how many of y'all imitate your dads a little bit? Anybody got characteristics of their fathers? A little bit? All right. I have been told that uh, I am a spitting image of Keith Carl Owens. I look exactly like he did at my age. I sound exactly like... When we talk on the phone, people will confuse whether they're talking to me or my father. We Our voice is the same. But even attitudes and mannerisms, don't we pick up that stuff? Don't we imitate? And so in verse 14, if God has called us to redemption, if God has called us to salvation, we are obedient children and we must not be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. We must not be called to uh, the, the passions of the world. We are to imitate the Father who loved us and adopted us. But more so, God doesn't just adopt us and leave us who we are. He changes us, doesn't He? If Christ is in us, do we not have a new mind? Do we not have a new attitude, a new life? We are going to imitate God the Father by imitating Christ. So if God is holy... As His children, we are to imitate that holiness. Now, what does that look like? To imitate can sometimes be just to copy or to mimic, right? Little children, they may not understand what they're saying when they're first learning to speak. They're just kind of mimicking sounds. But before long, they they figure out what they're saying. They begin to grasp it and start thinking. But initially, do little children mimic everything that we do? Absolutely. But by mimicking, eventually we become like it. But in this situation, we are not just simply to mimic God. As God is holy, we are, and if we are His children, then we are to be like God and be holy. But that's impossible, right? Here's what Carl Henry has to say about this. He's an American theologian. One of the greatest American theologians of the 20th century, Carl Henry says this. He says, the passionate urgency with which urgency was demanded of the people of Israel now devolves upon the church of Christ. Holiness, he says, is seen to be integral to the Christian's calling and his election. Right? How many Christians do we know? We look at them and we go, man, you're not being, you're not very holy. You know any Christians like that? Got some folks in the church, they claim Christ, but man, they cuss like a sailor, they drink like a, a fish, they uh, hateful. You know some Christians who are gossipy? Manipulative? Would that be very holy? Judgmental, always looking to criticize and condemn someone else, but looking at themselves as perfect and wonderful? I think what Peter would say here is uh, they may not be God's children. Now, here's the problem. 
If someone were to turn this around and begin to imitate God's holiness in order to be seen as Christian, they've turned it, they, they put the cart before the horse here. The only way this actually occurs is that God himself redeems us. Then we have a changed mind and a changed perspective to begin to be holy as God is holy. Holiness is integral to the Christian life. Holiness is integral to the Christian election and calling as as saved people. It is nothing, I mean, it's expected here. But do we as the church hold people accountable? No. We're not supposed to judge. We're not supposed to question. But there is a fine line here there. Now let's look at verse 17. We'll close this out. Peter talking to the church, And if you call him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. I mean, how do you guys honor your dads? How do you how do you honor your father? How's the best way to honor a dad? Now, as a father, let me just tell you what I think would be honoring. If my kids just trusted me, right? Would you agree, guys, men? If you tell your children something, you just want them to trust you. You don't want them to obey out of fear and trembling. You don't want them to obey because you're the dictator. You just want to be trusted. You know, I, I just, I told you not to run out into the street. Don't you trust me? I told you not to get in the car with those folks. Didn't you trust me? So how do we honor God the Father? Verse 17, if you call on Him as Father, this is the words of Peter, if you call on God as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. The, these Christians are in exile. They're, they're, they're aliens where they live. And in the midst of all that, they may doubt God. If they are to honor Him as God's children, let's trust Him. Even in the midst of exile, even in the midst of I don't know what's going on, God has placed us here. Let's trust Him right now. That would be the greatest honor for God the Father. Because in verse 18 and 19, if we are Christians, knowing that we were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, has Christ redeemed us? Have we been bought with a price? Yes. And so this salvation that we have been granted is enough during those hard times of doubt, not understanding what God is doing. If we can trust God even in the midst of that, that's evidence that we have been totally bought by Christ. Now, before we get confused and, and misinterpret this, that we have to act a certain way or do certain things in order to be saved, let's get that totally off the side. There is absolutely no way that anybody can imitate and behave like a Christian but still be unsaved by not actually being saved. 
You can imitate and, and put on the facade all day long and you can fool the people around you, but God knows the heart. Amen? If someone is genuinely changed, if their mind is totally transformed in the mold of Christ, there will be trust there. There will be an attitude of holiness there. There will be an attitude of, of even humility. Even in the midst of holiness is even an attitude of humility. Jesus himself, Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2, he humbled himself as a servant. Setting aside all of his rightful powers as God, he was still God, but he, he chose not to exploit that as God's son and he humbled himself for our sake. Are we humble in our holiness or are we arrogant in our holiness? If we are humble as Christ is humble, then we honor the Father. We trust him in that. And this is what Peter is encouraging these folks. Even in your exile, remember where you've come from. Remember your salvation. Remember the Jesus who loved you and died for you. Remember the Father who bought you with a price. And honor that Father with your holy attitudes and actions, even in a hostile environment. But what do we do as Christians in 2018 as our culture is shifting? We want to stand up for our rights. And we're going to go against those who attack us. I don't see Peter talking about that here. I don't think Peter would encourage American Christians to stand up for their rights with an attitude of anger and defensiveness. Stand up for our religious liberties, yes. But let's not be arrogant and aggressive. Let's be humble and loving. So that they see we're different. Amen? Would that be something? Let me close this in prayer. Father God, we do, we do praise you for your word. I mean, we could go on for an hour <laughs> on just a few verses here, but Lord, you have given us encouragement, you've given us instruction, you've given us the foundations we need through the blood of your Son. I pray God that as Sovereign Grace Baptist Church here, I pray God that you would use us for your kingdom, but in that process, God, that you would change us and mold us to be your holy people just as you are holy. We will never be as holy as you, but we do desire to honor you in our holiness, in our humility, by setting our hope on what you have done for us and what you will continue to do in the future. I pray, God, that where we don't trust you, you would forgive us. Where we do not honor you with an attitude of holiness, that you would forgive us. Where we do not treat each other as you would expect your children to treat each other, that you would forgive us. We call you Father because that's what you have named yourself. And you have loved us as your children. 
And I pray, God, that you would remind us of that when things get tough. That you would remind us of that as we think forward as a church in this community. What is it that you want us to do? Guide us, Father, as your children. Love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.